0: So are you guys excited about Easter week? Amen, in Jesus' name. Because we serve a risen Savior, amen? The grave could not hold our King. Interesting how the Lord always works these things out. But we happen to be uh, tonight in Acts chapter 25. And it is in this passage that before... The Roman governor, the new Roman governor, the Apostle Paul, is going to make the statement Jesus is alive. So we celebrate that this week because that tomb's empty, amen? amen. No bones, just an empty grave. One announcement for you out on the counter if you, uh, well, if you have earplugs. <clears throat> And they're available, and you want to go to the fairgrounds here on the 14th of May. And if you happen to like Skillet, it's free. So it's going to be a great time. Um, The kids will have a blast. So I would really encourage you. Great band. Uh, We've had them at the camp a number of times. They're, you know, huge as far as the young folks are concerned. So down at the Orange County Fairgrounds on the 14th, it is free. All you get is pay for parking. So good, fun thing to do awesome music, take an unsaved friend and let the band minister to him. Tonight, Acts chapter 25 if you'd turn there, we're rapidly moving our way along here in this amazing book will be done in a few weeks. We are in the middle of these three chapters to where Paul has the difficult task of waiting for God's sovereign plan to unfold. Anybody else not real good at waiting for God's sovereign plan to unfold? Now, there's a tremendous lesson to be learned in these three chapters, and that's really the major theme, because if you remember, Paul's already been promised he's going to preach in Rome. He's not in Rome yet. Matter of fact, as we ended last time with Festus, and now on to Felix, the new governor, It's been two years since he was arrested originally and held in the Antonio Fortress. He's now spent all this time. You can only imagine what's going through Paul's head. It's like, Lord, you told me I'm going to preach in Rome. It's been two years. Maybe I didn't hear you right. Maybe God changed his mind. Maybe I wasn't hearing from the Lord at all. You see, very often in that time of waiting, that's when we start to kind of figure things out for ourselves. And anybody else try and help God occasionally? Uh, Yeah, I try and help God every once in a while. When he's not working as fast as I want him to, then I come up with my own plans, which, by the way, are rarely beneficial. And usually they cause me extra headache. And so tonight, as we look at the first 22 verses here in chapter 25, uh, we're going to find Paul now uh, with the new governor of the province who's come down from, has gone from Caesarea down to Jerusalem. And Paul is going to now give his testimony before yet another politician. So he's preaching once again in the public square. This is part two. And we'll finish up with part three of this series. Uh, next time, would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to bless us as we study his word. Father God, we again Just thank You so much for Your Word, which is eternal. Lord, for the instruction that we receive from it. Lord, from the life of this amazing saint, this amazing apostle, this man whom one day when we take our last breath here on this earth and transfer our souls into the heavenlies, Lord, we'll be able to talk to the great apostle Paul. Lord, to sit down with him and, Lord, converse with him. We can't wait because You've defeated death so shall we one day also be risen. Lord, as you promised, you've gone to prepare a place and you will receive us again unto yourself. And so that same promise that you made to the first century church, you make to us tonight. We pray that you bless your word and strengthen us now to receive it and to grow by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue again, 24, 25, 26... These powerful rulers, Felix, Festus, and finally, actually, King Agrippa, the Caesar. So they're kind of stepping up the ladder, if you will. And very often in our life experiences, it's kind of how things go. God works by graduated levels. Uh, Very often we kind of start in a certain place, and it seems as though the enemy turns up the heat, and we find our way uh, into, into greater and greater difficulty at times. Sometimes the things that we think we are already through or already over, they just seemed almost endless. And that's the way it must have seemed to Paul. You can imagine he's been already condemned by the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's met before both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The crowd around the temple condemning him, he's already withstood all that. He's made his argument, he's already talked to one governor, now he's gonna two years later talk to another governor, and finally the king, you would think to yourself, When's enough gonna be enough? We run out of patience, don't we? Uh, we run out of we run out of waiting on the Lord, don't we? We we run out of actually faith is what's at issue here, isn't it? Sometimes we, we just think, well, God's forgotten me. Or perhaps God doesn't care about this part of my life. Or maybe God's not actually sovereign. You know, there are a lot of Christians that believe God does, is not fully sovereign. That He only controls the things that suit His pleasure. And we're going to find from this passage, along with really the rest of the book of Acts, That God has it fully under control. We may not like how he does things, but God is God. And, And he works those things together for us who love him for the good. And he works all things together ultimately for his plans and purposes. He hasn't fallen off the throne. Nobody's fallen through the cracks. He's got it all under control. The question is, will we give him enough time to work out his plans? And so now he's going to appear before Festus. Verse 1 says here uh, in chapter 25, And now when Festus had come into the province, after three days he went up to Caesarea, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So he has been the new governor for a whopping three days. This is, his, this is how vehement the enemies of Christ can be. Now remember, these are the same Jewish religious leaders who tried to kill Paul two years earlier. They haven't let go. They haven't stopped. The attacks haven't quit. And there's a lesson to be learned in that. If you're going to serve the Lord, you can count on attack. It's going to happen. You are going to have your... Life called into question. Things are going to happen to you that you aren't going to like. People are going to be mean. They're going to falsely accuse you. They're going to say all manner of things falsely against you because they did the same to Jesus. And they'll do the same to you and to me. And then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. Now, this is not crazy to you. Think about it. Let it go. It's like, why are they doing this? Imagine now what's happened. Paul's been out of the public square, in essence. He's been imprisoned. He's been under house arrest to some degree. He's been allowed to have some contact with people from the outside. But he's largely been silent for two years. But those who hate Christ don't give up. Those who hate the things that God's doing in this world don't give up. Satan doesn't give up. The enemies of your soul don't give up. They're still lurking. They're just waiting for an opportunity to throw their accusations out there. And they petitioned him. And so the first thing that we see in this passage is that Paul's going to have to endure yet another attack. You know, when I first entered the ministry... I had the false assumption that if you were serving in ministry, that God would just put like a holy force field around you. you somehow you would kind of dwell inside of this like bubble, and wherever you went, like if demons got near you, they'd just like, they'd be zapped. Or if like Satan tried to attack you, there'd be a sign, you can't get him, you know, Whatever. I I had this assumption in ministry that because, you know, now I'm in full-time ministry and, you know, God would actually just more supernaturally protect me because I was so valuable to God, of course. You you see, it's exactly the opposite of that. What I've really learned in ministry is, is that the more you seek to serve the Lord, the more problems you have, the more difficulties come your way. But in those difficulties, the more grace God gives. The more perseverance and patience God gives. The more ability to endure and to suffer long, God gives. And when those things come up, those little things that you used to freak out over, now you've seen God handle things like that so many times. It's like, okay, Lord, I I know it looks like I'm going to die here, but you've got this under control. To a large degree those things which are considered success in our spiritual lives are actually built largely upon our failures and inabilities. All of a sudden we realize that we're not strong enough in and of ourselves. We don't have it all together. We don't have the answers for all these things. We're more reliant upon the Lord. And that's the case here for Paul. There's not a thing he can do. He's been in prison. He's going to talk to a new governor. And sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is just wait on the Lord. That doesn't mean that we sit around with our hands in our pockets and, you know, wait for God to work it all out. That's not what's being said here. But it said sometimes that the things that we do result in more things for God to do. Amen. Sometimes there are things that we do that actually create issues that God needs to now resolve. And so there's nothing wrong with waiting on the Lord. <clears throat> As Harold Bushnell once said, he said it's not necessary for all people to be great in action, for sometimes the greatest and most sublime power is simple patience. It's just simply waiting patiently for God to work out the details. And Felix, basically the previous governor, had refused to decide Paul's faith. What do you do in your life when it comes to waiting on the Lord? It's a huge question for us. What do you do? What do we do? What do I do? Do you get anxious? Do you get angry? Do you become embittered? Do you get discouraged? Uh, I personally don't know too many people who've been in ministry for a very long time that don't occasionally get discouraged. That that don't feel like you know, gosh, God, don't don't you? Are you? Not getting what's going on here in my life. Haven't you seen what's happening to me right now? I've been faithfully serving you and you're letting all these things happen. We do that. And the result of that is we stop trusting God at times. We start to act in the flesh. I think very few things test our patience, test really our faith, like having to wait on the Lord. Just simply enduring as a good soldier, as Paul said. Can I say to you that it's interesting, Because now, and we can equate this to our modern methods of warfare. Do you realize that now in our day and time, an average engagement between two armies when they're actually fighting lasts less than an hour? But you know what happens before that and after that? There's a lot of waiting around, there's a lot of cleaning of guns, there's a lot of storing of ammunition, there's a lot of loading of planes, there's a lot of logistical things that happen, there's a lot of the seemingly boring, mundane, and then there's 15 minutes of a firefight. That kind of describes a lot of times our lot lot in life as we walk with the Lord. There are a lot of times when it's just like, it's kind of like we wait, 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 wait. And then there's this incredible battle for like ten minutes. For your mind, for your heart, for your actions. And we need to learn to make better use of that time waiting by seeking the face of the Lord. Asking God to work in that time that is not being seen to us currently. I think that sometimes this is the very reason that God puts us into situations where we have no other recourse but to wait. I I think that God does this to me all the time. He puts me in situations where there is nothing I can do about it, but simply wait for him to work out his plans. One of the first things on Felix's, Felix's agenda here is the prosecution of Paul. He's only been three days into his governorship, and he's already being accused. Uh, Paul had already been used for an evangelist to the Gentiles. He'd been planning churches. But in essence, he's innocent as far as the Romans are concerned. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is Satan hates his guts. He's not going to give up. And sometimes the things that come your way, come my way, come the church's way. Is because Satan sees the unlimited potential that we have as the Holy Spirit works in us as individuals to accomplish the plans of God. And he tries to thwart those things. And you may be looking at yourselves going, well, oh, gosh, you know, what am I really doing for the kingdom? Do you realize reaching one soul while you're here on this earth has eternal value? Don't think that Satan doesn't try and discourage the one. That that he isn't after you because you're going to be the one that shares with that person at work. You're going to have that impact in that person's life. But what we need to really learn to lean and trust in is God's sovereign abilities to accomplish those things which he wills. God sovereignly works to govern the entire universe simultaneously every nanosecond of every day. And he's not lacking power. He's not lacking ability. Satan and God are not equivalent. Satan is minuscule in power compared to God. But sometimes it seems as though Satan's got the upper hand, doesn't it? It seems as though the world's flying apart. Listen to all the political rhetoric that's going on in our country today. And and you would think that God's taken his hand off the nation. And maybe to some degree he has. I, I think that might be a explanation. But the simple fact of the matter is, for the body of Christ, does that really matter? And the answer is it doesn't. Because God still has it under control. Amen. And whatever he allows, he's going to give us grace to get through. Whatever he allows, he's more than big enough to accomplish all the things that he set forth from the beginning of time. Even if the economy doesn't turn around. Even if the next six years of our governance here just doesn't seem to go quite right. If the wrong people get elected, God didn't fall off the throne. He doesn't. He's always able to accomplish His plans and purposes. It doesn't mean we abandon our post. But it does mean that we have to trust Him. And sometimes we have to wait very long periods of time as God works out His perfect will in the lives of nearly 7 billion people simultaneously. Think about that. Any any of you ever thought, uh, you know, you look at your own life, okay? And you don't do a very good job of running that, do you, at times? If you're honest, I, my, every once in a while I was like, well, I forgot that. I didn't remember to do that. Now imagine that not only does God manage the lives of seven billion people, but He manages how they intertwine with each other. And He manages our environment. He takes care of the universe at the same time. The only thing that's variable in all that is how much extra work we by our choices give God that He then has to also manage. You see the problem? So when we're not listening to God and all of a sudden we're off, we're supposed to be over here but we go over there and your life is entwined with your whole family and this church and all kinds of other people here in our community, you just created more for God to do. But He's not going to drop any part of it. But He is going to allow you to make your free choices. So as you make those free choices, one of the great reasons that we lengthen the processes by which God works in this world is that we're not walking in His perfect will. So we just created another 50,000 things. You can do simple math. If you take 1 plus 1, it equals 2. If you multiply 2 times 2, you get 4 Four times four, you get 16. You, you get the picture. And as each of those lives touch other lives, you can imagine all the balls that God's got up in the air, and yet none of them ever hit the ground. So those ones you created today, He still got those up too, along with all of the rest of them of everybody else. And so God's time frame is often much longer than we like it. Because he's not just concerned about you. He's concerned about everybody simultaneously. We look at it. Well, God, why don't you do this? Because if God did it, it would affect countless other people's lives in a way that's not good. So he works out another plan. I'm trying to help you understand that when you're talking about God's sovereign plan, it looks like he's lost control. Because we've given him more to do every single day. But God is in control. I love Ezekiel 18. For every living soul belongs to the Lord. You know, what an what a amazing thought that is. Paul understood that. But it didn't make Paul comfortable. And at times it won't make you comfortable. But I can guarantee you, if you look at the sovereignty of God throughout Scripture, you're going to find out that in the very worst of circumstances, we find out he had it under control all along. Easter week is perhaps the prime example in all of Scripture. If there was ever anything in Scripture that looked like it was going bad fast, was it not the life of Jesus towards the end? Think about it for a second. Palm Sunday, he, he's heading down the road to Jerusalem and the crowds are shouting Hosanna and he says, I don't want to be crowned king yet because that's not why I'm here. I've come to die. Can you imagine the thoughts of the disciples at that time? What do you mean you're going to die? We're just getting started. James and John arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The rest of the guys are hiding when he's crucified. I mean, these are swell guys. I mean, the kingdom, you can see how it was going to get launched from there. It all looked like it was going bad. The whole thing looked like it fell apart. Imagine the, the handful of disciples that were there at the crucifixion. When Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine what they were thinking then? God has forsaken Jesus. He said it Himself. But what was really happening was God was working His perfect plan. But they had to wait, didn't they? Specifically, they had to wait the three days. Then after that, Jesus appeared to hundreds of people for 40 days and then ascended. And they had to do some more waiting. Waiting is part of your Christian experience, family of God. A big part of your Christian experience. A necessary part of your Christian experience. In verse three, he goes on, asking a favor against him that he should summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. There's a, there's a picture here of exactly how The world functions against the body of Christ, against the beloved, really against the Lord himself. But the Lord in you is is the focus of that. The The world hates the church. It's always lying in wait. It's always trying to kill you. It's always trying to paint a bad picture of Jesus. I just read Time Magazine, this week's issue of Time Magazine a complete nutcase pastor named Rob Bell. He had pastors at Mar- Mars Hill Church in, outside of Chicago. He says hell's not real. Well, if hell's not real, then Jesus was wrong. You see, even from within the church, the enemy is trying to, oh, you guys believe in Hell? Can I tell you, it would be a whole lot easier if there was no hell. It would be easier to be a pastor if there was no hell. Well, you know, I mean, we're just a philosophy of live and let live. There's no eternal damnation, no punishment. You can do whatever you want. And you're going to get one of several levels of heaven. By the way, that's exactly what Mormonism teaches You see, the enemy's always lying in wait. And it's deadly anger. These Jewish religious leaders have plotted. It's now two years later, and they're still trying to kill off Paul. The enemy's not going to give up. But there's a lesson for us in this, too it's the lesson of unresolved anger, it's the lesson of bitterness. It's the lesson of what hate stored up in your heart can do. Can you imagine what these guys have been going through, that they would still two years later be after the Apostle Paul after he's been in essence in prison for two years, and all he had supposedly done was defiled the temple? He took a Gentile man, Trophimus, possibly into the temple, and they still want to kill him for it? That's the enemy, that's how he functions, that's how he works. Verse 4, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. So Festus is going to go actually see Paul and therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. They've already done this. This is nothing new. It's going to be God's intervention that's actually going to save Paul because this is just a different day. Same story. In verse 6, it goes on to say, And when he had remained among them for more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. Now think about it. I think it's wonderful here that that the author of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke, records how much time has expired. So three days into his governorship, he spends ten days with the guys who want to see Paul killed. No doubt the whole time, feeding his head full of garbage. The enemy works that way. You ever notice how sometimes Scripture declares that the enemy comes as a flood? All of a sudden there's this whole army of people who, well, you know what Jeff said. You know what he did. You know how he acts. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, which was common for the governor. In other words, this is the word judgment here is actually the Greek word bima. So he's sitting on this seat that could be used for judgment or reward, either one. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid serious complaints against Paul. Notice what they said that they could not prove. The enemy is a deceiver. He very often has almost no reality in his bag of tricks. It very often is that it's smokescreen, deception, the wave of the hand, uh, you know, the whole Yoda thing. I am not here. <laughs> Wasn't me? It's how Satan works. He works by deception, keeps telling the lies long enough until people begin to believe him. This case, remembers against a Roman citizen, the alleged troublemaker, and now the trial, in essence, begins. He's going to be before these Jewish religious leaders, but they can't prove a thing. Same baseless accusations from two years ago. False accusations are going to be around for as long as you're on this earth. And I love how Paul doesn't respond. And if you want to know how to respond to false accusations, it's don't respond. Don't give them the dignity of responding to things that aren't true. Because the truth speaks for itself. Very often people get in trouble by trying to, in essence, build an argument against an argument that isn't one. And for the multiplying of words, the book of Proverbs reminds us, sin is not lacking. When you begin to just overly hash out a situation, eventually you open yourself up to scrutiny. And so Paul does the right thing. These unsubstantiated charges didn't get any more powerful because they'd waited two years. They're still baseless arguments. Let them remain so. Again, I'll draw my own life experience into this. When I first went into ministry, I thought I had to have an answer for everything that anybody ever said. I have learned that people say mean nasty things about me all the time. It just, it's part of the, it's part of the deal. It's part of being a pastor. It's part of having a place in the kingdom that actually has any type of meaning. People will say false things against you. It's not because they so much hate me. They hate the Lord. They hate the ministry. They hate Jesus, basically. And they'll try and attack. I have, I have listened. I have sat, stood next to people while they're railing about that Jeff Gill, you know, that, you know, Calvary Chapel's trying to buy up the whole town. I had a guy, this was in Jensen's a couple of years ago. Yeah, Calvary Chapel, they're buying up the whole town. They bought all the houses, and after the fire, they just snatched everything up. That's Jeff Gill. Hi, I'm Jeff, and we're not buying up the whole town. No, you, you know, this is what people think. It's not happening. Those Christians, all they want is money. You start answering all those things, you will spend all your time answering false accusations, and you'll get nothing done for the Lord. God is my defense, and He is the defender of my character. And if I will walk in truth and live by His word, then I have Him as my defense. That's all we need. Is what we see Paul do. Do those things hurt at times? Of course. But religious people, without a relationship, have no other tool but falsehood. We have the truth on our side. When you have the truth, you can just stand in the truth. It always bears itself out in the end. And while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Notice what he doesn't say, what's missing here. He doesn't answer any one of the specific accusations against him. Nothing. He doesn't come with a big legal brief and he opens it up and flops it on the podium there at the judgment seat. And Well, on July 13th of, you know, AD 62, um, Bob over there in the front row said this about me. No, well, he just says they're all false. Because ultimately, the burden of proof then is shifted to the person who's made the false accusation, isn't it? Very wise. Paul denies the charges. And basically says, I've done nothing wrong, and if you guys think I've done nothing, something wrong, you need to prove it. Verse 9, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And so Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. And so wherever the Roman governor was, he was a stand-in for the Caesar. And so the, the judgment seat that he's standing before is the judgment seat of the Roman Empire. Serious deal. It's the same thing if you went to superior court. It's the court that governs this state. You're standing there before it. And so Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. Isn't that an interesting statement? He said, I'm right here where I ought to be. Because I haven't done anything wrong. If there's any crime, it would have to be a Roman crime. Because by Jews, the Jewish law, he's already said, I didn't do anything. My story hasn't changed in two years. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you very well know. They already couldn't prove that case, and they couldn't do it with a bunch of Pharisees and a bunch of Sadducees before the Sanhedrin. They certainly couldn't do it in a Roman court. And Paul wasn't going to give them any ammunition. He wasn't going to start unraveling before them. He said, for if I am offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. That's boldness. He said, I know where I stand. I stand in the truth. Haven't done anything. And I'm not afraid to stand here because this is a higher court. Of course, in an eternal sense, that's not true. But in the practical sense, of course, it was true. The Romans could put him to death. The Jews could put him to death. The Jews had already failed. Now he's before the Roman court. The Romans aren't going to do it either. I don't object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things to which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them, for I appeal to Caesar. So now he's saying, you guys are no big deal. Matter of fact, I'm so sure of where I stand. I'm so positive that I've done nothing. I appeal as a Roman citizen to Caesar. Remember, he's Saul of Tarsus. He's a citizen of Rome. He has the right, every Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Caesar, literally to Caesar himself, ultimately. And so they would go up the chain, just very much like our court system works. You might start at a lower court and an appellate court and superior court and supreme court, and eventually you'd make it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Same exact scenario, moving up the ladder. I haven't done anything. There's no case. It's false. It's baseless accusations. And so he basically says, go ahead. Festus could have proposed that the members of the Sanhedrin would serve as a part of the judge, but there'd be no fair trial in Jerusalem because the court had to be made up of all Roman citizens. So it couldn't be Jews. See, if you went to a Roman court, Paul knew this. You couldn't put any Jews in the court. Who was trying to kill him? It was the Jews. So in waiting all this time, it actually benefited his case. Now, you wouldn't think that as you're waiting for two years, sitting in a jail cell or under house arrest, but God was working out His perfect plan. Because remember what God told Paul was going to happen. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to go preach the gospel in Rome. So if I've got to have you arrested, and you go through a couple of years of getting harassed by a bunch of guys from the Sanhedrin, if ultimately that ends up with you going to Rome, have not I been faithful? And the answer is God was faithful. He was working out his plan. And in the meantime, look how many people get to hear the gospel message as Paul stays in these various places. And Paul made good use of that time. In essence, the emperor at that time was the Emperor Nero, and And he hadn't really started persecuting the church yet. But it was about to get really, really, really ugly. And so uh, he wanted to go. And Paul had no fear. When you're walking in the middle of the Lord's perfect will, you have the same thing. You just don't have any fear. It's just like you kind of have a that holy force field is around you. It's just like the Lord's got it under control. You can just go and do what God called you to do. Verse 12, And then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. Now, the cool thing is, there wasn't anything, actually, that Festus could have done about it. He, he had to do that, humanly speaking. It's actually better that it worked out this way. And so, the whole time, it looks like God's completely lost control, but in actuality, God was actually working it out for the very best for Paul. It took a long time to do that. Don't underestimate the amount of time that it takes God to work in circumstances in your life. Matter of fact, the cool thing is, because he would appealed to Caesar, guess what he's going to get all the way to Rome? He's going to get an armed escort. He's going to have the Roman army to protect him all the way to Rome. So the people that were lying in wait to kill him by their own actions are actually going to have provided the army to protect him. That's a big God. It doesn't look like it's going to work out that way. It doesn't seem like that's what God's doing. And then all of a sudden God's plan is revealed. and You go, oh, that's what you're doing. That hindsight is pretty good, isn't it? You look back and I'm sure Paul's going, yes. I got my own private army. I get to go to Rome. So that bloodthirsty group of Jewish leaders done their best to try and kill him. But not only were they not going to be able to kill him, they weren't even going to be able to get near him. He was going to be protected, completely protected by the Lord. And I'm sure that that whole time, that whole Roman cohort is going to get an earful of Jesus. So not only is he out of the situation, but he's getting an opportunity to do what he wanted to do, which was to preach to Romans. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to... Greek Festus, and when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left prisoner by Felix. In other words, he's kind of a thorn in my side. He's been here for a couple of years, and he's downplaying the whole thing now. About whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, and when I was in Jerusalem asking judgment against against him. And this King Agrippa is actually Herod Agrippa II. He's the son of the great King Herod, Herod First or Herod the Great, descendant of Herod of Great, Herod the Great. And like their grandfather, like their son, um, they had, in essence, inherited all of the power in that region. They were Idumenian, which means they were part Jew, um, usually part Greek, part Roman. Um, but the Herods were actually more of an office than it was a name. So when you hear Herod, it's actually not a name. It, it was a position. And they had inherited that. Each generation uh, kind of followed after the first generation or the generation before them. Weaknesses, mistakes compiled, all of those things. And you remember, it was actually Herod who sought to kill Jesus at his birth. And so this family of leaders for generations has been uh, responsible for persecuting the people of God. And in fact, here now, Uh, Agrippa II, a young man at this time, probably only in his early 30s, uh, begins to to rule the northeast territories of Palestine. And that was the reason that he had the name or the title of king. But he was really the ruler of Palestine is what it boiled down to. And so those areas that were not uh, controlled by the Jews, in other words, Jerusalem, the temple itself, basically everything else was controlled by the Herods. And so... Kind of sickly, Bernice was actually his sister. And so they were intermarried uh, very, very, very deeply. Basically, she became a mistress to to her brother, Agrippa II, uh, married an an adjacent king. And so now these families are all twisted and tied together. And so this is some seriously, I mean, you talk about the ultimate family dysfunction. And this would make a great TV show. It's like the Herod's. Herod Agrippa, you know. Herod the Second, Herod the First, and all of their wives, who were actually their sisters, cousins, aunts, uncle. You know, it's, it's that's the way it was. And so these these people, uh, for several generations, uh, most of the lessons that we can learn from them are negative. That power corrupts. That that ultimate power corrupts even more than the power at a lower level, and you can see that played out. And so. They're anxious to kind of put their little relationship together, and they had befriended the Roman governors, and it was just a mess. I mean, you talk about uh, political favoritism. If you were favored by the Herods, then you could get an audience with the Roman governor, and the Roman governor would appeal to Caesar, and before you know it, uh, you had all this power, and you didn't have to have a lick of brains. Uh, you didn't really have to have any skills whatsoever. It kind of sounds like Washington in a lot of places you know, when I think about it. Oh, now I know, I'm just messing with you. But it, it is, it, that type of power does corrupt. And ultimately, uh, they, they were absolutely wicked. Verse 16, And to them I answered, Is it not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction? before the accused meets the accusers face-to-face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him? They say, oh, that's right. Somebody has to actually face their accusers. It's the same in our law today. Vestas describes the details of the case, gives some embellishment, but the Roman law doesn't convict people without a trial, period, end of conversation. So Festus is very accurate here. He reports what he sees, and the Jewish leaders uh, now would have to travel to Rome. You think they're going to travel to Rome? That's 1,300 miles. They're not going to travel to Rome. There isn't going to be any accusation against Paul. But he is going to get to Rome. And then when the accuser stood up, so... Now the accusers are going to have to take their shot right here because Paul's going to Rome. He's going to get a Roman guard to do that. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed. Remember, they couldn't falsely accuse him because there really wasn't any... It was all baseless. Remember, they said they thought that he might have defiled the temple. They they never brought any actual accusation. And, of course... Festus, Felix before him were not going to go before a Rome, before the Roman court and say that they heard that they heard maybe somebody kind of sort of think that they saw somebody do something. That wasn't going to fly. But had some questions against him of their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died. Now the real issue gets unveiled. You remember what the Sadducees and the Pharisees were arguing about. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. They were at each other's throats. Remember, Paul appealed to the Pharisees. He says, yeah, we believe in the resurrection, right? You know, we're kind of brothers in that regard. Sadducees said no. And so he's recounting the story. Whom Paul affirmed to be alive. You see, that was the issue. The, the problem was that Paul had affirmed that Jesus Christ had defeated death. And Paul had been preaching that Jesus had defeated death. He said he's alive. Remember who was responsible for killing him physically? It was the Romans. Who accused him? It was the Jews. Who put him there? It was you and me. All of us. You see, the issue was, as far as they were concerned, Jesus was alive. Paul was spreading the rumor that Jesus wasn't dead. Looked bad for the Jews, looked bad for the Romans, and the only people it looked good for were these people who were of the way the Christians. Could they possibly be right? Were the Roman gods a joke? Had Judaism fallen into disfavor? You see, the real issue was then, and it still is now, Jesus is alive. If Jesus isn't risen, then he didn't defeat death. If he's not risen, then there is no eternal life. There's no being born again. Christianity fades into irrelevancy if Jesus' bones are found in his grave. Paul affirmed he was alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, you see, he's heard the gospel message in essence. He said, I don't know what to make of this. Festus is admitting, I heard it, and you know what, this Paul guy, he's got a pretty strong argument. The Jews haven't been able to prove their case. Because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. And of course, Paul said, You can take me where you like. Truth's the truth. He's revealing, in essence, he was at a loss. He didn't know. But he was sure having his heart pricked with the truth. You know, sometimes as we share the Lord with people, you know, sometimes you get the immediate response. That's just ridiculous. That that's insane. I can't believe you believe that. I've had people actually say that. They'll say they'll usually start, Well, you seem to be an intelligent person. How can you believe that? And I say, first, I'm not an intelligent person, there you're wrong, so secondarily, if there's anything I know it's that Jesus is alive. Millions of people have testified of that with their very last breath. And that's mass hysteria like the world has never seen. The first century church was filled with people who had seen the risen Lord. And if these things were not true there would have been a book 10 times this size of all the you know the, the stupid christians and they were sharing the story but here's where they laid him they would have if jesus had been dead trust me someone would have his bones right now they would have been gone here's your stupid messiah but they can't because the tomb's empty but yet all these people and jesus appeared to 500 people at once in one occasion all the disciples appears to all of these people who, in essence, we find in the New Testament at least once. You see, that's the issue. And that is the sole difference between biblical Christianity and every other world religion. Every other belief system. Founders are dead. Tombs are filled with bones is one of the things that's so prevalent in our society today. You know, we're becoming more and more secularized as a country. When you look at our nation, very, very, very few people today, I think, have a solid walk with the Lord. They're probably saved, but they're marginally Christians. And a lot of the things that they give up on are the very things that are unique to biblical Christianity, The word of God being inerrant. Jesus Christ actually died and was raised from the dead. Your whole salvation hangs on that fact. He doesn't die. He isn't raised. He hasn't defeated sin. He hasn't defeated death. We're still dead in our trespasses and sins. Period. Because God demands a sacrifice be made for those sins. And the only one big enough to do it. The only one grand enough and great enough to do it as the blood of his only begotten son. And if he didn't raise from the dead, then when we die, we're still dead. So it was and still is the huge issue. Festus describes this vivid picture in the secular mi- mindset. He says this dead man named Jesus. Even the word God today, think about it. The word God is kind of interchangeable with doorknob or, you know, a planet or a tree. I read a whole article a couple of years ago of this guy that believes that the Redwoods here in California, we should name each one of them because they have spirits. And you could go, if you put your ear up to them, you can hear them talk. And then he said the bigger ones are actually kind of like gods. That was his statement, not mine. So when you go to the General Sherman tree, you can just imagine God there on his, you know with his roots. If that's your God, you we're in trouble. That means your God produces nuts. I don't think so. But our, our postmodern worldview, God has come to mean pretty much whatever you want it to mean. You make your own God. Several cults believe you become gods. It's not what the Bible teaches. There is one God in three persons, and that God is a creator of everything. That without Him has nothing been made that's made. And that by Him and through Him all things have been made. And that humankind was made in His glory. When I hear people talking about us as highly evolved animals, it makes my stomach turn. We're not highly evolved animals. We were created in the image of God Himself. We are completely different than monkeys. We don't have a thing to do with monkeys. Apes are not our ancestors. God himself is whose image we've been made in, unique. Wonderfully, fearfully we've been made, Scripture declares. So when you're talking about raising the dead, you're talking about reuniting God's creation made in His image with the God who created them. That's a pretty big deal. God doesn't say that about as much as I love my dog. I mean, that's just like, I love my dog. But I don't love my dog like I love my wife. I don't love my dog like I love my children. Because there is a difference between humankind and And the whole rest of the creation. You look around the world, there's so many places, and as Festus makes his argument here, he says, You know, this guy Jesus, he supposedly isn't dead anymore. He's alive. That's what Easter's about, it's about an empty tomb. You go to Westminster Abbey in London, you can see the bones of kings. You can look back on the monarchy of England and go, wow, that's kind of cool. But they're all dead, and they're going to stay dead. I, When we were living in Austria, and we'd travel around and went to many of the cathedrals in Europe, have the carcasses of kings and, you know, you look in there and some of them have glass sides on them. You're like, that's just like really sick. It's like, who cares? He's like dead. He might have been great, nice guy when he was alive. But he's dead. That skin hanging off his bones, that's not really all that appealing. We were in Zermatt, Switzerland, and Zermatt—you know the Matterhorn's right there—and and there's a graveyard uh, that's in in the Anglican cemetery there of Saint Peter's, and it's it's filled with famous mountaineers. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, cool. These are guys I I've read about these guys, you know. Sir Edmund Hillary, Tenzing Norgay—all these, you know, these. People that you hear, you know, these, that type of people are buried there. Like, that's awesome. But they're dead. If you, if you would, were able to, which you can't, by the way, because you're an infidel, but if you happen to be a Muslim and you could travel to Medina, that is a closed city, by the way, people think, well, I can go to, no, you can't go to Medina unless you happen to be a Muslim. And you're not allowed to go up to the door of the tomb of Muhammad. Muhammad's bones are in Medina. It's where they reside. He's dead. He's not God. He's not eternal. He's dead. His bones are in Medina. It's what the Muslims claim. They're venerated. You can peek through a little door. It's a little green door with a little window in it. You can look in there. Even in our own culture, when you travel to Washington, D.C., and you go to the Tomb of the Unknowns, it is awe-inspiring. They're dead. They're gone. It's just a shell. Jesus is alive, and that was the case that Paul made. And that's the thing that's going to now travel with him as he continues his journey. Well, what an opportunity to share with people in the public square. Now, I just gave you a whole bunch of examples of things that are there, Ways to stem, stimulate conversation. Somebody asked you about Islam. Ask them what they think about Muhammad's tomb. You know, what What do you think's in Muhammad's tomb? Where do you think the bones of Buddha are, are at? You know, where are they? For that matter, how about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The tomb contains the bones. Then that person's still dead. Jesus's tomb is empty, and he's alive. Paul is going to take that message now, and he's going to speak to King Agrippa next. We'll catch that one in our next study. Let's pray, Father God. We thank you for your plan, Lord. Thank you for those times when we don't understand while we're waiting all the things that you're at work doing. Lord, help us to increase in faith and to grow in patience, God, as we do that. Lord, help us to be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in that labor of love, knowing that in due season we'll reap we don't grow weary. Lord, help us to not be wearied by the things of this world. We thank you that this week, this amazing Passion Week, that we celebrate a live Jesus. We celebrate eternal life. We celebrate conquering sin. We celebrate conquering death. Unlike any other world religion, we celebrate a king who happens to also be God. We celebrate a God who happens to also be our king and our savior. And in doing so, we, we know... Because Jesus, you conquered death. We too, one day, will conquer death. We bless you, Lord. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. We can't wait to meet him. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, and strengthen us. Encourage us in our walk and as we gather together on Friday. Good Friday to us. And there are so many reasons why Good Friday is good. We pray that you would just Cause us to draw near to you this week. Recognize the price paid for our lives. Lord, that one day we're going to see the glories of heaven because of the blood of Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time tonight. Pray that you would now strengthen us, use us as we walk with you this week. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, family. See everybody. Seven o'clock Friday night. Be an awesome time. Good Friday service. Get to celebrate the cross of Christ. Amen.